everybody. Welcome. To what? To the Voxology Podcast. <laughs> yes. You're one Ladies for and one. gentlemen, Good job. it is official. Oh, Seth even has it. Seth even has the Voxology. He's got the name. He's got the name. <laughs> and and friends, we cannot just help but say thank you to, to all of you who have commented on the name, the logo, uh, con- sent congratulations in. Um, I would say there were probably 10 people I heard from in various ways who have listened to all 313, right. 318 episodes. Yeah. Which some of them are looking for, some of them are looking for swag. Well, th- it's definitely worth something. Um, I mean, we're definitely, we're on an honor system here, but I mean, if we average an hour, that's, uh, <laughs> and I think about how many changes I have undergone and made and how much the podcast has changed in six years Totally, for people to hang with us the whole time. I mean, that's just remarkable. So thank you for that. And um, yes, there were people that were like, of course, silly. We have listened to all 318. And I'm like, that felt, <laughs> you, you know what it felt? Um, it felt humbling is what it felt yes. like. It was like, wow. Yeah. And someone, uh, there was a couple of people that, commented that were uh like new but had just like binged through all 300 oh my goodness (laughs) which is a lot of content that's a podcast that's about a podcast today um someone said vaccinated which i i don't think that we had i don't think that was ever on our like lists of funny names or whatever but it seems like a (laughs) no-brainer yeah vaccinated i love that um, yeah, there were where were all these people in the in the dream phase? Um, <laughs> although although I will say I I really like really like what we got. So thank you, yes. and and just ha, we did have a color palette, and we did. I wasn't making that up. <laughs> so as that theory would say, ha ha, ha ha. Um, some thank yous to some folks that, that came on our team, Ryan and Jonathan and Chris came on our Patreon team this week. So thank you so much for that. Jim and Cindy. Um, I, I have to tell you a story about Jim and Cindy because I was leaving this big church and I was leaving disappointed and, and hurt and feeling like a failure and all these sorts of things. And this couple came up to me and just said, Hey, we want to be a part of whatever is next. And they became part of the launch of Vox Community, but they've also been supporters of the the podcast since the very beginning. And um, and I just saw that they had I don't know they'd been very generous this week, and so it was just like, come on, that's so kind. Jim uh, and Cindy is also the name of the parents on Nine Hundred Two One Zero. That's impressive. Jim and Cindy Walsh. In case anyone's out there is keeping score. Wow. Um, did you hear Gombus busting your chops on his podcast about you guys doing really doing a YouTube podcast? No. <laughs> he spent he spent 45 minutes talking about you too. And then and then he calls you, and it's funny because you go from Tim Stafford just to Stafford. So we have a Stafford and a Gombus. So I haven't listened to that yet. Oh yeah, man. It's like it's it's for Uh-oh. real. So you better it's coming. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've talked about it long enough. Um, yeah. 
And then, and then just one last, one last thing. And I just, I, I don't know why I feel compelled to share this, but last night I spent an hour and a half listening to what for me was the greatest album, the full album of the eighties. Okay, there were lots of great music. I mean, Appetite for Destruction, late 80s, that's kind of its own thing. But in terms of pop, um, I grew up to Duran Duran Rio. And front to back, that, that album just still gets me in the feels, as they say. Um, I, re I was revisiting Teenage Mike last night with flowing <laughs> blonde hair parted down the middle feathered uh on did the side uh, did you have a nate quaff nate's got a quaff he has a quaff but but then um back then like i don't think we were given lots of permission to, to exper experiment with quaffs it was like you had the the middle part or the side part or you had curly hair and those were the three options <laughs> unless you were a stoner and then you'd have a uh, you know you could have a ponytail but that was that was about it yeah um, uh, so I, I did, I had beautiful lush hair and I thought, and I, and I made fun of bald people and that'll, if there's not a lesson there for you kids, <laughs> you'll have to dig up a picture so we can share it. Uh, the, you and RDJ, yeah. uh, he has Duran Duran play his birthday every year. Oh, like still they come out for his birthday and he has like a private Oh my Duran goodness. Duran concert. Oh my goodness. And then on, on that same kind of topic, there I don't you probably wouldn't be interested in this, but I found this very zen in a weird way. What's that? On YouTube there is a a yearbook video like that someone made for their high school in like 1986 or 7. Oh yeah. And it's over an hour long and it's just a video yearbook from that high school in the 80s and I sat down and just quietly watched the entire thing. Did you and weep? It was really wild. It's just really interesting. Like I was a kid in that era. Like, yeah, my dad was a high school teacher. I remember what high school kids looked like. And oh yeah, it's, it's oh it yeah, like a different planet watching oh. it now. Oh, they're all smoking and drinking beer on campus, and they all have mustaches. And it's like sixteen. <laughs> totally. <clears throat> Why well, listen? I mean, like when I listen to my. So one of the things I've learned about parenting is to love what your kids love. Learn to love what your kids love. Don't ever dismiss it as, you know, all oh, that wretched music now or whatever. Like, learn to love what they love. And so my, my son and daughter love R&B, love hip-hop. They're into Kendrick Lamar and Quedeca is what my son's really into. And, and so I'm, I'm into all of the stuff and they love sharing their music with me because I will sit and listen and pay attention and affirm That's it. so fun. And, um, but I was noting like there, when I was 16, 18, you know, it was, it was uh, Def Leppard, Pour Some Sugar On Me, um, you know, Bon Jovi, Living On A Prayer, Toto Africa, you know, Duran Duran, The Reflex. I mean, it, you know, and the, the Eurythmics um, and that, that, that era of music represented such sort of bright, sunny future possibility. Yeah. When I listen to the lyrics of the songs that Nate and Hannah are drawn to, they're about uh, mental illness and about uh, shootings and yeah. about suicide. And like they love Mac Miller. 
mm-hmm. and um, who took his own life. Uh, or ha- I think it was a drug overdose, but they don't know if it was intentional or not, I think. Um, and and, and it's, it's, it represents such in a, in a different way of seeing the world. And so like when you were talking about your 80s, an hour in, of kind of looking through life through the 80s again, yeah. Uh, that's something that kind of when I was rocking out to Duran Duran last night, it pulled me back into like that sort of Reagan era. Um, it's all clear. It's all good. And the possibilities are endless compared to what our kids sit in, yeah. which is it's ugly. And I know about every ugly thing going on out there, you know, way before I'm old enough to understand or put it in context. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, between YouTube and, you know, well, for my kids, YouTube, yeah. but social media, like you are aware of everything as it happens. And, you know, just the amount of information their little brains have to filter is yeah. wild and great at the same time. And you're aware of, like, you see the <clears throat> judge, jury, executioner kind of uh, process happen before all the facts are in on things. So it's everything is so dramatic and and, all and you're forced and you're forced almost to or compelled i should say to take moral stands on everything you're seeing yeah when when and i, I know i'm sounding like a total old guy but it's like man when i was a teenager no one cared about politics um <laughs> it didn't matter we weren't glued to it you know i couldn't tell you i mean i remember when reagan was uh shot i remember that um then I started paying Remember attention. Ben and- Stein on Ferris Bueller just talking about the voodoo economics. <laughs> totally. But like Hannah, for instance, is just this radicalized, like in a, in a good way, just justice warrior. Um, and is super aware of everything happening in the world and initiatives and justice issues. And I think that's a good thing, right? In some ways, for sure it is. But it's just a fascinating difference in the kind of world we inhabit. And it, and it kind of, it reflects in um, worship music um, mm-hmm. or in Christian culture. Like the Christian culture I grew up in was sunny and rosy and everything had to be good and clappy and happy and end in pretty red bows. And now I can't stand that stuff. I can't stand yeah. that cliched, syrupy nonsense. Or, you know, the sentimentality, as Gombus would call it. Right. Um, now, like, we, like, we're singing a song in our community. Um, and I don't, I don't know the name of it, but we sang it last week. And it was like, when I look at the blood uh, around the cross, I don't see manipulation. I don't see self-interest. I don't see... Um, uh, uh, there were a couple of other like really good words like uh, power over. Um, and this was a worship song. And I was like, mm-hmm. yes, that's, that fits the, the spirit of the age way better than just singing over and over and over that God is my boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. Um, right. uh, and I was sitting there like, I haven't been moved by a worship lyric like that. Right. In a, in a really long time. Uh, so I don't know. I, th- I think there's, it's fascinating to be a Gen Xer um, uh, because, you know, we're now, I mean, man, we're late 40s, 
um, to early 50s, we're looking at our kids and now our kids are having kids and it's just, a, it, they're inhabiting a completely different culture. I mean, you look at it, I used to think about this with my grandparents, because you talk about you, you got the, what you're saying with the 80s, but then you have that early 90s that shattered yes. the 80s yes. and brought in a lot of that heavy, dark, Nirvana. and at the same time, the, you know, the riots are happening at the same time, Rodney yep. King's happening at the same yep. time, AIDS is really kind of exploding, like really big conversations that are forcing people to broaden their horizons. Yeah. That gets a negative outlook, but a lot of it's reality, like... Totally grunge. People may react negatively to the darkness, but the darkness is real. So you have, it's like, yeah. I don't think there is a perfect version. I think about my grandparents who are, have been dead for a really long time now, but they, I used to think about the arc of what they saw being born in like, I think my grandpa was born in 1917. Oh my goodness. And so the arc of what he saw in his lifetime. Right. Was bananas, like multiple oh. world wars. Yeah. You know, just really big depression, uh, technological de- de- depression, everything. Walking like, on the really moon, interesting. electricity, but all that stuff carried with it. Also, the uh, seeds. It's just when we talk about yeah. all these creation dynamics and stuff, and we look at how thing that this existence right now is a little bit off the rails. Yeah. When we try to think about there being a perfect version of something, I just. I, I, you wonder why we try so hard to, I get why people want that, yeah. but it doesn't seem possible because everything has yeah, stuff hanging off of it. Yeah, totally. And that's why none of that syrupy, cliched stuff is tolerated. It's not tolerated. I mean, maybe it's tolerated in music, but I haven't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not familiar with the pop charts to know. All the charts I'm familiar with are very aware of evil, injustice, um, and the awfulness of living in the world. And, yeah. um, and you'll get that from Taylor Swift. And right. She's about as pop queen as you get. She's right. Got some, she's got some, I mean, speaking of things that I listen to with my kids, I've have most of her newer records memorized. I mean, yeah, I, we, we did go through a T Swift phase and, um, it, but it's, it, I don't know, it's just interesting. So I don't know how we got off on that. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> we're here. It's the Voxology Podcast. Cue the music. All right, all right. Ladies and gentlemen, we got some stuff to cover today. Uh, Tim, we have so we have so many great emails to respond to, but this one is one email in many parts, and mm-hmm. we've received permission to share it, and um, and I think it speaks to uh, I don't know a lot of the conversations that are being had out there in the world. So, Tim, why don't you stand in for our emailer? So uh, this is Katie. She gave us permission to. Um, read this Katie. and share her name. Nice. Um, she starts with the pleasantries, which is always a nice way to start anything. Thank you, Katie. Um, so she's got multiple things in here that I think are, are wonderful to mess around with. I don't think we have time to do all of them. One of the first ones, I mean, the first thing that she comments on is she says, um, she's, she's talking about the episode 300. Uh, so the first part that really got me was Bonnie's example of the prostitute with the alabaster jar. 
and how using our current understanding of the term brings with it many connotations, mainly sexualizing all of this woman's actions, when another translation would make her the victim of human trafficking, completely changing the way we view her motives. Translation one, temptress. Translation two, victim. Uh, I'm so glad you talked about this notion of different translations having potentially huge consequences as this is something I've been wrestling really hard with over the last month. It started with listening to Beth Allison Barr's episode on the Holy Post and hearing her claim that certain translations of the Bible were deliberately created to keep women out of positions of power. This is the first time I had ever considered that there could be oppressive agendas behind biblical translations, maybe some inherent and some deliberate. Uh, but it rocked my whole view of the Bible, and now I don't know how to read it without questioning all the things. And then she uses <laughs> that example from John 15 about the vine and the branches. Yeah. Um, and how she asks that question in there. This is kind of with the same question, so I'll, I'll put this in there too. All right. Um, I was always ta taught that once we are in Christ, nothing can separate us from him. Maybe that was a misinterpretation on my part. So from this passage, it sounds like there are things we can do to not remain in Christ. And if that is true, how do we know if we are in him or not? And how do we know if he is pruning us or cutting us off the branch completely to be burned? Ooh. I know that it says we will be, we will know a person's fruit, but how do you know when someone is beyond the ability to produce good fruit anymore? And then she says that she, you know, has heard that the translation is not correct that it's not cut off but actually raised up so the gardener would raise up branches that were not producing fruit to get water and sunlight so and this so this idea of the mistranslated word yeah. whether it's intentional or a poor translation whether you know someone had a nefarious goal of <laughs> keeping people down or not right um but it's a big thing and i had this conversation with someone this morning about a high school age student and this is things I never wrestled with in totally. youth group in high school, but it's kind of relates to the pop music thing as well, that this young lady was uh, wrestling with hearing a verse taught two totally different ways with two totally different outcomes. And then being like, I kind of don't want to do this church thing anymore because there, I don't know who to believe and who to trust and who to listen to. And Katie asks the same thing. Like, yeah, who do we trust? And that's a huge question because <laughs> churches started on, you know, a lot, when many churches have started on mistranslated words and built theologies or systems out of that stuff, that's a lot to dismantle. Yeah. Go, Mike. Solve it. Oh, wow. Well, Katie, man, what a great, great question. And I, I feel, um, I don't feel totally adequate to do the question justice. Who can you trust is the postmodern question. Mm. Because, you know, what's been unveiled for a lot of us has just been the power games and structures that sit be behind a lot of authority. And so, you know, how, how can you trust what I'm going to say? I mean, you, we can go. I mean, that is totally a legit question. Um, so I'll just throw some thoughts um, and maybe something helpful can uh, come out of the conversation. Uh, first of all, yes, there, there have been, I mean, this started early in the Christian church. Marcion, um, in the second century, I believe, cut out <laughs> the Old Testament completely. It's like mm -hmm. this, the God of the Old Testament is not the God of, that. there's no way that's the God and Father of Jesus. 
And so he just expunged all the Yahweh stuff and kept the New Testament. You've got, you know, the, the Thomas Jefferson Bible that cut out all the miraculous stuff. You've got the slave owners Bible that cut out all the stuff about liberation, but kept in the stuff about slaves obey your masters. Yeah. Um, you, you do have, as time has gone on, you do have better manuscripts. You have more archaeology. You have Dead Sea Scrolls. You have, you have pieces that allow, in our, in our, uh, allow linguists and translators to better understand the culture around some things. So I tend to trust newer translations over older ones um, for that reason. Um, one of the translations that I do not trust um, is the ESV. Um, it, it is produced by the Reformed camp, and it, is, it, it very much slants um, all of the Pauline conversations towards a complementarian point of view. And yeah. some of the Pauline uh, conversations about uh, soteriology, which is just how it is that we're saved, um, is towards the Reformed view. And so there is a massive amount of bias that I've seen in that one. Now, there is no translation that is free of bias because, according to Christian theology, um, the only thing that was perfect or inspired was the original documents. And we have copies of those, but we have copies upon copies, and many of them have variants. Um, and so we don't, you know, we, we with, with a high degree of confidence, can put together what may have been on the originals. But although the originals were inerrant or without error, and again, that's a loaded term that we can talk about another right. time. <laughs> um, that is a massively loaded term. Uh, the copies we have aren't inerrant. And um, even the translation process isn't inerrant. There, there are all sorts of different translation philosophies. Um, like the New American Standard Version, um, they very much take a word for word. They, they take the, the Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic word and look for a corresponding English word. Uh, the NIV, which is what I prefer, um, very much is a, a thought for thought um, translation. So, so, but even there, there, there are words that you end up going into and you're like, ah, why did they choose that word? Uh, when this word, I think, is better. And so you'll hear us often on the podcast say, hey, I, you know, we did it in Sermon on the Mount. Like, this is how it comes across in English, but in Greek, it really is, is more this. Or this is what the Greek word means, but we've actually learned the Greek word can also mean this. So, so when you come to the Bible, and it's in English for you, there, the amount of interpretation that's already been done just to get it into English Right. is pretty surprising. Um, that's why it's often good to read a text in two or three different translations to get a feel for how those different philosophies play themselves out. Um, I personally um, try to balance in public preaching readability with um, academic, like solidly sort of middle, down the road, uh, leave leave as much uninterpreted as possible, and so I, I tend right. to favor the the 2011 version of the NIV. But um, I, I think all of these nuts and bolts aren't super helpful to the larger question, which is, all right, when I open my Bible, what the heck's happening, and how do I know that that what I'm reading 
uh, is what I'm understanding. Like, or what, I, what it says in English is actually what it says. And, and there are two errors here. One error is to uh, avoid the very common evangelical approach to the Bible, which is, well, what does this verse mean to me? And right. out, completely out of context, no regard to historical um, or narrative flow. Just no, I mean, it's just this individualized personal application crap that gets us into so much trouble. Yeah. The other error is that the Bible's only for the elites. Uh, only if you know Greek and Hebrew can you understand the thing, and everyone else just needs to wait upon you know our sacred translations, and then you know then you can understand for yourself. Um, in the middle of that is the invitation to approach the Bible as an ancient document, which means there's loads of work to do. We don't just right. we don't just enter into its world through English or through American and Western eyes and think, oh, this is what it means. So take the John 15 passage. The John 15 passage you reference isn't about you at all. It's not about Christians. It's not about abiding in Jesus. This is about Israel and Jesus pruning Israel. This is, this is not, I mean, again, it, this is a great example of the problem. The problem is that um, we read the Bible without any regard to our context or its context. And so we'll come and we've been taught, yes, the vine, the branches, it's me and Jesus. But with any talk of vineyard, that's Israel, always been Israel. It's in the parables, all over the synoptic gospels, it's all over the Old Testament. So the pruning of the vineyard is the pruning of Israel. And even specifically, something that's regarding the pruning of the temple. Now, how would you know to trust what I'm telling you, as opposed to somebody else. Right. Right? And, and this then is, is the key. You always, first of all, you always read the thing in context. Secondly, you always do the background work. So um, the, the New Testament wasn't written in a vacuum. The New Testament doesn't just show up on Greeks without any reference at all to what had come before. This is all Jesus, the way the gospel writers frame Jesus, even if they're aiming at a Greek audience, is as the completion and fulfillment of the Israel story. Um, and so you have to understand that everything that Jesus is saying and doing is being um, is in reference to something that had happened before. So his- Right, not take the Old Testament out. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> So there are ways of reading the Bible that lead to more fruitful understandings than other ways. Yeah. Reading in community, that's number one. There is a big, wide community and this great, huge tradition of, of 2,000 years of understanding. Some great, some not great, but there's a massive conversation that's been happening around all of these texts. None of us are the first to come to them or wonder about them, and so the resources out there are fantastic. Number two, uh, it's the understanding that this wasn't written to us. This, this is not about me as an American. This was it's written to one. them. And so how they heard the text is where the conversation starts. The conversation yeah. does not start with, hey, Mike, what do you think? Or Tim, what do you think? Or, um, or whatever. The, the conversation always starts with how would they have heard these and understood these images? Yeah. 
Um, and even asking that would doesn't guarantee rightness, but it just means we're in the ballpark of asking the totally. right questions because they lived in a collectivist culture where um, communal identity was far more important than individual identity. Yeah, and understanding um, that gives you at least a starting, like a, a more healthy, I, I think, a more healthy place to start in your pursuit of understanding, right? If you can start from the right spot, and then try to figure out the application to yourself or whatever. But if you're starting from the contextual, this is what this was meant. This is what this meant to whom and when and where that yeah. at least puts you in a place to begin yep. your trajectory. And the easiest way to do this, Katie, is to sit with a notebook and take that John 15 passage. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to open it up right now. That John 15 passage. Let me find it quickly. And you have a notebook and, and you write out as many questions as possible. So he starts by saying, I am the true vine. All right. So, so we realize chapter divisions are introduced much later. They were not original to the gospels. So I'm, I, and in my Bible, the red letters are the words of Jesus. And there's a whole bunch of them right before I get to chapter 15. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm seeing, oh man, he's talking to the disciples here. This is kind of his last, sort of his last, the last supper. Um, okay, well, that, that's going to matter. Uh, and then he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. So I, instantly I'm asking, okay, why true vine? Are there false vines? Like, why is that word true there? And why vine and why gardener? Are those Old Testament images? And if they are, what do they mean? What do they represent? How would Jewish people have heard vine and vine dresser? And you're like, dude, there's stuff in Ezekiel about this. And, and there's stuff about the temple. Um, and, and you're like, okay, so there's something. There's something like, okay. There's something there. And then cuts off every branch to me that bears no fruit. What's it mean to bear fruit? And is this literal fruit or is, he, is it a metaphor? And are we talking about, um, are we talking about, what's a branch? Is a branch a plural or is a branch a singular, right? Mm -hmm. So is this an individual person or is this a group? Um, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Okay, well, what in the world does this mean? Again, singular or plural. And what does it mean to bear fruit versus not bear fruit? How would you understand it in related to the vine and the gardener image in a Jewish agrarian culture? How would you understand this image? Where does it come from? He says, um, so he will prune you. What's prune mean? And again, all sorts of questions there so that you will even be more fruitful. All right, that's fasting, but what kind of fruit are we talking about? You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. What? Then why are you warning us about pruning and cutting off if we're already clean? And why the word clean? That changes the metaphor. We've gone from an agrarian metaphor to a purity metaphor, right? You're already clean. Remain in me and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Okay, neither can fruit, uh, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Now, I, I'm just riffing off the top of my head, yeah. but I, the last thing I'm doing is saying, what does this verse mean to me? The first thing I'm doing is going, what's this and what's this and how would they have heard this? And you're just asking, as my friend Steve uh, references it, uh, you're asking a thousand questions of the text. And so you come out of that teeny passage with 30 questions. Yeah. And then you go, okay, now we're cooking. 
And again, this is work, and this is why people don't don't want to do it, right? Because who has time for this? Right. Um, yeah, you know. But then there are references and scholarly works that you begin to consult, and you're working through it. And it's like, oh well, this guy says true vine is this, but this woman over here says true vine is that. How do I know? Well, well, I read three more commentaries, and they all seem to side <laughs> with the woman. And you're like, that does seem the, the more reasonable view, but it could mean that. But it's yeah. with confidence I'm going to you know, go this. I mean, so I'm over, way over answering the point. I'm just trying to say that you don't have to throw it at the whole thing out simply because right. there are all of these, that there are agendas. Absolutely there are agendas. You have agendas to the text. I bring agendas to the text. The people that produced the text had agendas. Right, Mark will tell you his whole goal is that you would see Jesus as the Son of God. He starts by saying Jesus is the Son of God. Then he ends the whole gospel by having a centurion look at Jesus and say, truly you are the Son of God. That is absolutely a goal. John says, my goal is that you might believe. So don't be afraid of agendas. The, but when agendas are brought into the open and not hidden, right? that's a good thing. And when you realize that there are certain agendas that are attached to power dynamics and certain ones that aren't. And so when I read um, uh, female commentators, people of color who've written commentaries, I'm reading way differently. Like I read the Sri Lankan um, scholar and he, what he brings to the text is so fundamentally different. It's like what, like what Bonnie did. Yeah. Um, you're And so, so within this great community of witnesses, we sit and engage for me from a place of curiosity. Um, I don't take it as it's written to me in English, not at all. Right. Cause I've been burned by that. I've actually had to go correct myself yeah, when totally. I've, I've, and I've changed my view on loads of things because yeah. I was like, Oh, I didn't know Which that. Which is so important to be in a place that you're willing to do that, to learn that you were wrong and to adjust. <laughs> Well, that's called discipleship. And Katie, that's the, big, that's the big point. You don't have to be afraid of this. This is what it means to be a Jesus follower. Pick up the Gospels and, and, and notice all of the times Jesus has to correct the disciples' thinking. Always. Totally. Even after you know, this... he leaves and they have his spirit, <laughs> they're still messing it up. The, the, this actually, their pop music thing was actually, you're so smart. Maybe you were intentional or not, but it relates to this a ton. Um, when I think about when I think about Sunday mornings, the Sunday mornings from my youth, and we've kind of talked about that with some of the worship music and different things, and how messy what you just what you just described, how messy that is, how yeah. like human that process is of trying to figure out the divine, how messy we've made it, and I don't how messy it's always going to be because we are such a mess and that's part totally. of the beauty or dysfunction of humanity sunday mornings like i think about that and the sentimentality stuff and she has a whole section in her email asking about sentimentality we won't have time for but Ooh, um are why not? wonderful questions well we could if you want we can cruise on this all day the um sunday mornings kind of lacking the messiness the reality of the messiness that's right is like a red flag and the, here's the other thing, too, that I've been learning a lot from. The Sermon on the Mount was great for me because you really get to see and hear why Jesus says what he says to people. And a lot of things have to do with, like, power over 
others, mm-hmm. or that's something that I that I gathered. And so when Bonnie brought that verse up last week about the alabaster jar, the first thing that popped in my head was like, oh yeah, the prostitute thing has a power over the victim. That's what Jesus was constantly picking apart was like, mm-hmm. I, all of his things tend to have to do with people exerting power over other people. And often these mistranslations, I find that they are, they are translated in a way that does put someone in power over somebody else. Right. And so that's been a point where I've really like, hmm. I'm learning something in that. I don't know what it is, but I'm learning a lot that Jesus seems to be constantly tearing those power dynamics apart. And if I see something that feels like it doesn't jive with the limited amount of stuff that I understand and who he was in the Sermon on the Mount, where it seems like he's really trying to establish an understanding or something there these things that don't jive with that, I'm instantly like, okay, this, a flag has popped up and now I want to understand why, uh, why somebody is exerting power and it's, and it's, and it's, uh, ostracizing mm-hmm. whether it's women or socioeconomic groups or people of color or whatever. If, if something seems like what we're hearing or reading is pushing other people out, then I want to understand how we got to that understanding. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Or is that mm-hmm. rambly? Bro, I'm in no position to judge rambly after that answer. But no, <laughs> it was not rambly. <laughs> not at all. And, and Katie, I mean, these are a couple of done adde- dumb addendums that Tim's statement has triggered. Um, one is, our, our perfect theology is not the goal. It, it's impossible. Um yeah. Uh, and Jesus never made it, never made it the about um, believing rightly. So when we talk about false doctrine, we, they didn't have these big theological systems. Like there weren't these big systematic theologies floating around in the first century. It was like, you know, the, Jesus died. Jesus, Jesus was born. Jesus was human. Jesus was God. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Okay. <laughs> Right, I mean, it was pretty like there, there weren't these massive, you know, bodies of theological doctrine that people had to master. It was fidelity to the way of Jesus and His person, and that's it. And so, and then the second part is, my faith isn't in the Bible, not even remotely. I've come to Jesus because of the gospel accounts about Him, and then as I've encountered the gospel accounts and opened myself up to the possibility that that the gospel accounts sort of summarize the, f- the first two-thirds and then set the stage for the last third, I, c- I can engage in the whole Bible with great joy and confidence because I'm seeing, I'm seeing what God is doing and the logic of Jesus all over the place. Mm. But I don't, you know, if, if somebody said, hey, Paul didn't write Ephesians, which is a very, you know, big argument that's out there, okay. Ephesians is beautiful. (laughs) And the early Christian community said, this has the ring of inspiration. And so I I trust the God that sits behind the scriptures. The scriptures don't have to be perfect for me to come and and receive them. Um, I I find them to be a never-ending source of joy and curiosity. Um, Totally inspiring. And they're way more challenging than any any 
anything I would have ever thought. I just thought, you know, like everybody, you just start with like, okay, here's the moral code. And then it's like, no. Yeah. Jesus is doing this other thing that we've been talking about, right? This, this, this new creation thing that is so much deeper than just, am I cussing? Yeah. It's just messy. It's so messy. And that's kind of, I find that actually the inerrancy conversation is, uh, has been interesting for me because I kind of, I don't know how to say this. That's not going to trigger people, but I appreciate I the mess. I, that, I, my friend. Yeah. I appreciate that God has invited us in to partner with understanding the mess, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And because of that, the Bible is, has, like you already talked about, this lineage, this history of agendas and whatever, but that's part of, that's part of the mystery and the wonder and the curiosity is partnering into this weird divine human relationship that's trying to, to, I don't know. It's, I think it's fascinating and really interesting. And if it was just a moral code thing, that would kind of suck in a weird, like, yeah, I mean, we'll never be the bar first of all. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's just a, it's just a, uh, infinite bummer totally is what it would be and and i think that inerrancy is such a modern category to impose on an ancient text yeah like what does it mean without error like when the bible affirms an ancient cosmology that we know isn't true (laughs) well it's 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 just a black is that is that thinking about is that an error colors no, yeah. it's not an error. Of course it's not an error. God accommodates. Right? As Mackie says, the whole thing's triage, baby. So <laughs> come on. And, oh, and so, yes, man. our perfect view of the Bible actually keeps us from enjoying learning from and having the Bible form us. Yeah. Because we're way like, we have way too much. Like in the goosebumps. In, I think it's totally true. Don't you think? It's true for yes. me. Defending it's, the view our, of the Bible. Yes, limits us tremendously from yeah. the full scope and wonder of what it could be. Totally. I take it far more seriously now. Um, I mean, it, and it speaks. It, the, its authority over my life has so much more weight yeah. um, <laughs> the deeper I dive into the thing. Because I realize, yeah. oh, this isn't just this religious moralistic text of an ancient vengeful god um no no this is something that's pretty that if it's true it's it's the most beautiful thing possible Hmm. um and as rachel held evan said you know if i'm going to be wrong about a story this is the one i want to be wrong about yeah which i think is such a beautiful way to say that so anyway all right so that was one that was great katie (laughs) You want to keep Let's, cruising on it? Well, we might as well. I mean, we're right. we're forty five minutes in. <laughs> All right. Well, she says the second part that really struck me was how much Gomba seems to hate sentimentality, and then she says, "Haha, I'm always challenged <laughs> and conflicted when I listen to him. I'm open to the new ways so of we. thinking, but I think maybe what bothered me was the uh, the conflation of sentimentality with emotion." I am also a worship leader at a mega church and have wrestled with many of the things you have talked about such as guarding against performance, sincerely trying to facilitate a space where people can feel free to worship in song and not use music in manipulative ways. 
But one of the things that has always been precious to me is how God has used music my whole life to speak to me. And when I am singing to him, especially in nature, I feel most connected and closest to him. Then she goes on to talk about being very sensitive and empathetic. Um, uh, And, you know, how... And so, and then she talks about um, how being empathetic and... Uh, how that's a gift um, yep. of being able to feel deeply and in doing so help others to do the same, which I think, so she sounds like she's wired exactly how I'm wired. Yeah. Like, and I've learned a ton through the Enneagram with that hat maker did a awesome series and every episode was dedicated to just one number. And she brought in an expert, mm. a different expert on each number. And I'm like, because of my number, I'm super skeptical of all these kind of things. Like you can't classify <laughs> me. You can't tell that, me who I am. That's such a four. That's such a four yep. thing. Exactly. I recoil as soon as that comes up. But her episode on my number, I was like, I had to pull a car over and text and send it immediately to my wife. And I was like, you need to listen to this right now because I actually feel like this, like I was wow. listening to somebody talk about me and I'd wow. never felt that way before. Yeah. And there's some real dark stuff that's involved with my number, with all of them. But the empathy and um, feeling moved and emotion and that kind of stuff, that's how I feel too. And that's why I struggled with worship. So I resonate with this a ton. Yeah. Because it's been a very difficult thing. And when I look back, I think I told you, Mike, or someone, I just found a, a, a this, this will date it. I found a VHS tape of me teaching at a youth camp. Yes. And the things that I said <laughs> to maybe at the at that moment not intentionally trying to manipulate but to but it was set up to emotionally manipulate a group of kids into feeling a need for salvation and then trying to manifest that scenario and it's I yeah. like I feel dirty when I look oh. and listen to these things but so yeah, I think there, there's a lot in there because you know you, we, we've talked a bunch about the performance stuff, and we've talked a bunch about manipulation and, but this conflation of sentimentality with emotion is there, because music does it does, provoke, things in people. What do you do with that? Right, yes, and and part of. You know, I think what Gombas might be getting at, and he will speak for himself much more articulately, but but that word, I think, isn't a word against emotion. Um, that word is a way of expressing, expressing the pop version of Christianity. It's sanitized. It's not messy. It doesn't deal with the complexity or harm uh, or evil of the world, right? And Christianity's place in it. And so sentimentalism is just, hey, we've always got to feel good. We've always got to be high energy. We've always, it's a pep rally for Jesus, right? right? And um, and it's just hype, man. The sermon's got to be high energy. And we got to, we got to have great small groups. We got to, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, that was was a good metaphor the pep rally for Jesus. Oh Lord, it always felt like that. We're just all cheerleaders for Jesus. And our job is to get you on your feet, clapping to our songs, feeling the emotional moments at this particular time. You know, I mean, and it's like, yeah. Now, I think God is brilliant. I think music 
my goodness, man, the power of music. We could go on and yeah. on about that. But the sentiment, the sentiment I think that, that Gombus is warring against is the fact that it's that that the language set of modern worship music is small and flimsy compared to what the Bible offers. Yeah. And um so um I, I I'm with you. I speaking, you know, it's one of those things where I learned early on that there are like killer stories you tell and that can bring an audience right where you want them. Totally. And it's so easy to trust the killer story. And and one of the early temptations I had a youth pastor was I'd try to find the story first and then a verse that could kind of yep. riff off, you know, whatever the cool illustration was. What do I want people to walk away from? Yes. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And it's such a difference when you when you begin to trust the text to do the work as opposed right. to my energy, my personality, my wisdom, my cool stories. So amen, yeah. Katie. Yeah, one of the last things she says in that was whenever we have the pla- whenever we have a platform, there will always be the risk of wanting to focus more on the thing we are creating than the creator. But not all who are given a platform are performing, and it is possible to express real emotion and show our hearts without it being reduced to mere sentimentality. And I think that's true. One of the things with sentimentality that always bothers me is that it's like a nostalgia bomb too. Like, and this country in particular has a real thing with, you know like make make America great again. Like this idea right. of this better time, this better place and cultivating something that we know to be like super affecting and yeah. And, uh, and a lot of times that's hearkening back to things that don't invite either yeah. all people in or <laughs> yeah. Uh, the mess that we've been talking about. Totally. Yeah. Um, so excellent. Katie, Great job, man. What a fun set of questions that was. Um, So good. Um, I mean, our our Q&A episodes aren't as popular as kind of our media episodes, but they're so fun for us. Yeah. <laughs> just to, well, this I mean, stuff is, it's real stuff too. I, cause I have a, one of my best friends is a worship leader and he is struggling hard right now with his church, not wanting to push to change or to grow or to think. And he's just like, do I quit? You know, right. like we had that episode right. a couple of episodes, like, should I stay or should I go? And yep. I like, I love that Katie, that you're wrestling with yep. this stuff within the church. And I don't want ever the, all the critiques that we do of the church to be like, we're saying everybody, everybody run away and start a new thing. I don't think that was ever the purpose or the no, point. Cause we haven't, yeah. we haven't. We want to, I love that people are wrestling with this really important stuff in the middle yeah. of, you know, I don't want to say the belly of the beast because that frames it <laughs> poorly, but a different, a different uh, metaphor. Hey, speaking of the beast, let's talk about the powers and the principalities. Oof. Yeah. Well, we'll give it, we'll give it twenty minutes and then see where we're at. All right, I like it. Let's do it. Um. So many, many, many episodes ago. Um, we began to explore the, the, the idea that the salvation story the Bible tells isn't an individual story about heaven and hell. Um, it's, it's a story about uh, new creation, and it's a story about resurrection, and it's a story about embracing new creation dynamics as communities. 
And as part of that story, uh, salvation has to be cosmic because the corruption is cosmic. And so we began slowly piecing together um, different aspects of a cosmic worldview, um, as best we can tell, that includes the high, one, true, unique, and only creator God, but then other beings in the same classification, Elohim. And that these beings were... Um, they had authority and power in a realm that parallels uh, ours and overlaps it, but is somewhat distinct from it. The heavens and the earth are the way the scriptures entitle those. And in Israel, there are these, these, these pretty substantial droppings into the Israel story of this kind of background operating system that is populated by spiritual beings. And uh, we, we see them in Job and in Psalms, and we see them in Genesis with Nephilim, and they, they intrude into the Exodus story. And, and I mean, it's once you begin to look for them, you realize, oh, this, this isn't just sort of this oddity every now and again, but this is a real essential part of the worldview. And that worldview gets reaffirmed and expanded in the intertestimonial period, that period between the, the, the last Old Testament prophet and then like the coming of Jesus. And, and there are writings from that time that are full of um, narratives or apocalyptics, uh, apocalypses, excuse me, about these beings that, that you know, are... are they're writings that are from like the halftime show yeah. period yeah. time? Like, oh, there are okay. tons of them. Oh, interesting. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So like first and second Maccabees, although that's not as much. Jubilees, um, second, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, Erdus, Eridus. Um, I believe, I'm not, this is, this is, that apocalyptic literature is a brand new subject for me. And so I'm not at all, um, any way, shape, or form, an expert on it. It's just that you read some bits and pieces of these, and you're like, oh my goodness, this, this is expanding upon the worldview we've explored. And the reason all of this matters is because it's what Paul is forming his understanding of the church and salvation from within. Right, the reason we did all this like Nephilim, like divine council stuff, is because Paul, his letters drip with language of classifications about spiritual beings and the wow. work of Jesus over against them and the place of the church in among them. And it's kind of like it's tough to understand Jesus without the Hebrew scriptures. Well, it's really tough to understand Paul without just the recognition of, of what he thinks salvation is. Again, I was told it is salvation from my right. sin into Jesus's righteousness that gets me to heaven when I die. Yes. And um, there are bits of that story that are biblically faithful, but it's so small as to almost deform the whole story. Um, and so we've just been setting up different elements of the worldview that it seems that God created um, other agents and delegated real authority and that these agents, these spiritual beings, 
were to, um, that they had authority over the nations. And instead of leading the nations and promoting the flourishing of shalom, they led the nations into idolatry and injustice. And, um, and, and so when the old Testament looks around and asks, why is there so much evil? That's their answer. It's not that Yahweh isn't good or that Yahweh isn't powerful. It's that Yahweh delegated authority to, to humans and to these spiritual authorities, and they've each rebelled. Um, they've used their authority for their own gain and self-interest. That's why Paul goes crazy in Philippians about how Jesus used his divine prerogatives and privileges, not to gain more for himself, but to self-expend for the sake of others. And right. there, Yahweh exalts that way of life, right? And gives it the name that is above every name, Yahweh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because that, it's so, that, and, and so, so much of the Old Testament is Yahweh against the gods. And, and it's showing Yahweh's superiority over against the rebellious powers. So when you get to Paul, all right, Paul wasn't sitting there wondering, hey, why is there injustice in the world? His world was full of idolatry and empire and injustice and the subjugation of Israel. He had categories and language for this that we just don't have. The only mm -hmm. thing we have is, well, if, if the problem of evil, either God is all good um, uh, or he's all powerful or evil exists and all those three can't be true. Right. And, totally. and yeah. And you're like, ah, th there's, there's a different answer. The Bible it gives now whether or not yeah. you buy it. Okay. That's a separate issue, but yeah. at least let's give the Bible its say. Yeah. Let's at least understand what you're saying. No to. <laughs> right. So, so these figures contribute to the injustice and corruption and oppression of humans by humans, all right? So, and Paul refers to these figures by all sorts of names, uh, powers and authorities or rulers, or sometimes he'll use sin and death or flesh. Um, sometimes he'll call them um, uh, elemental spirits or the rulers of this age. He's got a zillion names for them, but that's what he's talking about when he uses that language. And so I'm gonna just read texts from his writings. Um, and, and there are more. I mean, I just selected a few of the more well-known ones where he is, he is portraying the work of Jesus against them, against these spiritual forces. So like in Ephesians 1, he'll say that power that raised Jesus from the dead, no, no, that power, excuse me, God's power, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted, God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, what, what are the heavenly realms? The heavenly realms are the realms populated by these other beings. It's not heaven somewhere else. It's a realm that exists now. Yeah. Right? He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority. Those are powers. Power and dominion. Those are powers. And every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but in the one to come. For Paul, there are two ages, and this was true for the Jewish reckoning of time. There is this present evil age, and then there is the age to come, which is the age of Messiah, the age of Shalom, the, the age of, of flourishing, the age of new creation, the age of resurrection. 
And the standard Jewish conception was that one age would end and then the other would begin. And, and the cataclysmic event that would signal the end of the present evil age and the inauguration of the new age was something called the day of the Lord. What Jesus pulls off is the, the judgment and destruction of the present evil age and the inauguration of the new age all done in the middle of the present age without stopping the present age. And so, so it's like a pretzel. It's like a pretzel. It's called the already and not yet part of the work of Jesus, right? Um, that the age to come, the age of Messiah and resurrection and new creation has burst forth in the middle of old creation. And so the New Testament writers are constantly reckoning with this in-betweenness, right? Yeah. It's just constant. So whenever you hear this present evil age or the age to come, this is not about heaven. This is about um, the age of flourishing in Shalom, where Messiah rules everything, and the, this present evil age, where the powers are unleashed uh, in their corruption. And so, um, so Paul talks about um, every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. In other words, I mean, notice how many different names he gives. He says, far above all rule and authority, there's two, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. Right? So there are five different ways he describes the powers. Yeah. Just right there. Or he'll say, as for you, in uh, chapter 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So there is a ruler. Now, now what's the kingdom of the air? What's another word for air in the Bible? Heavens. Yeah. So, I mean, okay, this, this is just baseline <laughs> like stuff. Um, Ephesians 2 6 God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in order to show that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace in other words God raised up the church to show off to the powers hmm. that his way is the right way that's interesting or, say, or wait, say that again, God. No, well, don't no, listen to this. This one's even more explicit. Verse, uh, it's chapter three, verse ten. God's intent is that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Huh. So the church is God's trophy of victory. That the self-expending humiliating life of christ is the heart of yahweh yeah or or um as as paul writes to the church put on the whole armor of god church not just you right. so that you plural can take your stand against the devil's schemes all right so we have a devil mm -hmm. for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against who the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So how many names does he right. give them there? <laughs> right? Rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world and spiritual forces of evil. So how do you make sense of Ephesians without right. including this part? Right? 
Or when we're talking about the manifold wisdom of God, check out Paul in 1 Corinthians. Here, notice what he says here. We do, we, Paul's team, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age. Now, what's that mean? The wisdom of this present age, right? We speak of wisdom. Now, what's wisdom? A way of life. So we speak of a way of living that's different than the way of living that characterizes this age. All right? So he says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Hmm. Right? So the rulers of this age are ultimately going to be destroyed. No, Paul says, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden that God had destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So the idea is that this present age is dominated by these cosmic figures. They are in rebellion against God and his purposes, and they do not remove um, responsibility from the humans but they facilitate our natural bents towards idolatry and oppression and injustice. Yeah. And they do that at the level of ideas. We're going to talk about that because he's talking yeah. not about, he's not talking, he's talking about the wisdom of the age versus the wisdom of God. Right. Okay. And so, and so what was the wisdom that's in view here? Well, none of the rulers understood God's wisdom or else they would not have crucified Right. the Lord of glory. So what's the wisdom? The wisdom is that God conquered death by dying. God was exalted through humiliation and yeah. God was vindicated, vindicated through suffering. Right. Okay. That is the manifold wisdom of God. Yeah. And that has created a people who joined Jesus on their crosses Right. To embody and inhabit a cross-shaped kingdom as evidence against the powers and authorities that the way of Jesus is right. Right. Yeah. And then you drag everything from the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, all that kind of stuff through that. Absolutely. As this, yeah. Th this is what new, this, these are all new creation dynamics. Because they're all God's wisdom, not human wisdom. God's human wisdom is I must get even. Mm -hmm. I hurt those who hurt me. God's wisdom is forgive and bless your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. Right? And it's that wisdom the rulers don't understand. So the rulers had no problem crucifying Jesus. What they didn't understand was that it was the very act of his crucifixion that raised him up as king. Right. Right and no, so so these, to meet. but notice these figures, and this is a huge Gombus point in his book, um, uh, weak uh, power and weakness. Power and weakness. Yes, he has a whole section on the powers. It's really really good. His point there is that in a text like this, how how are these figures operating? Are they possessing people? Are they controlling people? Are we just puppets? No. They're operating at the level of ideas. They're operating at the level of wisdom. They're operating at the level of what is considered normal human behavior. All right? So, so 
Why does the Sermon on the Mount stand out? Well, because it's counter human wisdom. All of that. Yep. Yes. So, so, so what characterized the rulers of this age? Well, they saw the women and they took. Yep. Right? What characterized uh, that moment for Eve? She saw the fruit and she took. What characterized that sin by David? He saw the woman and he took. Right? What characterizes my sin? I see, I want, I take. Right? And, um, and so there is this pattern of life that is just what we all considered normal. It's yeah. the myth of redemptive violence, right? The, the, um, the myth of human progress, um, that somehow humans can fix our, all of our problems when every instrument we create to fix our problems just creates more, <laughs> right? I mean, the insanity of, of, of hoarding, um, right. the, I, mean, I mean, that's where the powers and the principalities are operating. No, it and makes perfect that, sense. And the, the cycle of sin being like the wrath of sin being yes. caught in that cycle, that makes sense with that. Um, I'm trying to filter through like all the church conversations too, and even this worship conversation and this idea of emotion and sentimentality and how does worship exist in this, in this idea of wisdom, this conversation of wisdom. Where do we fit in worship right. with that? And then the idea of worship divorced from justice and totally trying to keep, I'm trying to keep all these little satellites in motion totally. with each other. Totally. Totally. And it makes sense. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount is exactly this. Yeah. The wisdom of this age is, um, I mean, and, and it's even the religious spirits of the age. Yeah. Right. So much of what Jesus is critiquing is this religious pretense, right? I mean, or or think about racism. See, that, that's why. That's why, I think, we should pay attention to to ways of evaluating um, social order, uh, yeah. is because there are these corrupted. I mean, supremacy, whatever supremacy, white supremacy, male mm -hmm. supremacy, right? Those. Those are, those are ways of thinking and living energized by the powers. And so what's fascinating here, Tim, is that spiritual warfare isn't binding the enemy or praying for a hedge of protection, but spiritual warfare is living according to the wisdom of God. Yeah. Right? That's which is, which is, and that's worship, by yeah. the way. So, so... I mean, and this is what the table was supposed to do in the early Christian community, that, that those who have high status outside the community would come in and be leveled down by right. the kingdom, and that those who were marginalized would come in and be leveled up in the, the kingdom. Equalizer. Yes, and, and to, into something that Gambus calls siblingship, mm. that they would eat at a common table which was as we know massively symbolic yeah common food without class or gender or any distinctions yeah and that that was the monument of the the leveling of the social order procured by jesus but embodied by jesus and created by the gospel and so the idea that we shouldn't care about you know social justice I mean, that's such crap. That's actually what worship is. Yeah. 
yeah. worship in the Bible is justice. Yeah. Um, and, and only, only because we've had to create a set of theological practices that insulate us from not loving our neighbors have we ever made that distinction, right? I mean, we had to create theologies that allowed us to own slaves, that allowed us right. to subjugate women's, women's or women, <laughs> right? That, that allowed us to retain cultural power. And of yeah. course, we would have to divorce loving, actually loving our neighbor from correct theology about loving our neighbor. I mean, it's just, yeah. and so when you begin to see this and you're like, man, that's the power. So, so spiritual warfare, um, and notice, I mean, when Paul says, take up the armor of God, what is it? Well, there's one mention about truth in there, but what's the truth? Is it, is it the, all the doctrinal nuances that, you know, we want to, we want to say, nope. Um, but that it's righteousness and it's the shoes of peace and it's it, notice it's all social. Those are social orderings. And if righteousness in the New Testament equals justice, which very often does, then you know what what we're what we're doing when we put on the whole armor of God is creating a just community. <laughs> so, anywho, man. So just a couple That's more so thoughts. so much to sort through. A couple more thoughts. Well, yeah. I don't know where we go after this. I mean, I'm like, I actually, I'd love to just do this whole series over again. <laughs> so I can, so I can like re relearn all this stuff because it's been so eye-opening. I love it so much. Man, um, I'm so interested in, are you at a spot where you know what you're going to say? Yes. Okay. The... I, in talking about where to go, I think there's so many, I'd love to hear what people think too, as folks who have listened to this series, like what questions is it open? Cause I think like for me, it's what I just said with the worship stuff. Like people keep asking now, well then how do I do this? How do I do this as a worship leader in new creation? How do I do this? Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And like, there's these ideas, but some of the practicalities of how we live this or institute it or even wrestle with it in a communal sense, yeah. in a productive communal sense. Ooh, okay. Let's start as thinking As people about are that. trying to go into church. Yeah, because you know, now everybody, okay. we're, we're opening these conversations. Where do we go from here? I don't know. I love it. <laughs> but I don't, like I had this conversation with somebody, oh, about uh, a future Voxology project. Ooh. Ooh. And, Ooh. Uh, but one of the things that, you know, there's a lot of deconstructing going on, right? There's a gazillion Instagram communities and there's a gazillion podcasts that are just about yeah. tearing their church down. Yeah. I don't want to be a part of just tearing it down. I want to be a part of, I don't, I want to be on the positive side. I want to be offering tools to help reconstruct or rebuild or redisciple or however it gets. Yeah. Whatever. I'm not interested in the phrasing, but the, whatever it is that I don't want to just tear something down to tear it down. Yeah. So I think it's interesting as we think about what this, how this manifests itself. I'd be curious. Absolutely. Thinker. Yeah. But it just, for me, it reconfigures, um, all of this. It reconfigures the importance of real daily life away from Absolutely. simple moralism. Yes. And and so Paul will say, like, apart from Christ, we are enslaved to the powers. And that doesn't mean possessed by demons. Right. But it it means so that we 
we cannot imagine any other way of living than the way of wrath. Yep, totally. And um, and so Jesus comes, and in through his resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Spirit, space is created for new creation dynamics to occur in partnership with God, right? Because partnership's been the goal the whole yep. time. And so learning, and so where, where I've been really enjoying reading the Bible is going through the letters of Paul and picking out old creation dynamics and new creation dynamics. And, um, and just writing them on a list, you know, in big, like two big circles of, okay, so... Um, orgies <laughs> is one of his. <laughs> but what's an orgy? Unrestrained sexual license, right? right? Totally. That's an old creation dynamic. Um, uh, he'll talk about gossip, slander, right? Old creation dynamics. Um, uh, and then he'll talk about, you know, generosity, forgiveness, humility, and Man, you look like Obi-Wan Kenobi right now. The way, literally, Tim, the way you're sitting, <laughs> kind of stroking your beard, you look like Ewan McGregor right there. Ooh. Ooh. I'm, oh. Anakin. I, I'm, I'm Anakin to your Obi-Wan. Uh-oh. That doesn't end well. That or doesn't. Does it? Well, I think it does. I think it, it ends great. also means you kill me. And then you kill me. <laughs> True. In a manner of speaking. Ish. Um, so all that is to say, yes. All right. Why don't we end it here? There is, there is a freaking boatload of stuff in that. What it, what it was 20 minutes or something. No, it's, it's so interesting. And again, if, it's if, man, it's so frustrating that this is, I mean, just when you're reading through Paul there and you were just giving the examples of all the times he references this stuff, obviously this is important. It's crazy yes. that this has not been a part of the conversation. I mean, at least in my upbringing over the last. Totally. You know, this is. And it has only been about the demons leaking and like lurking in the corners. Totally. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously, like we've said before, I, I don't quite know how these unclean spirits fit. Right. Well, I remember um, Mackie saying something to the effect of that demons were the souls of fallen Nephilim. Like, yeah, yes. And I have, and I, I, I just don't, I'm not confident <laughs> enough to say that's true. <laughs> so he I said don't in like know. an offhanded comment, too. And I was like, wait a second. What right, did you just right, say? Right, right, right. Oh. oh, man. So, anyway, friends. <laughs> Romans, countrymen and women. Um, thanks as always. Uh, who's your sh who's on your shirt today? Tom Waits. Oh, okay. I couldn't tell My if it was Tom or, or Lou Reed because it had just the top of it looked a little Lou Reedish. Yeah. But uh, of course, it's Tom Waits. Yep, yep. There he is. Um, it's great talking about things we can see on a podcast. So, <laughs> well done. Anyway, guys, Voxology, episode 301. Boom. Boom. If you want to join us on Patreon, go to patreon.com and look up Voxology Podcast. Yes. <laughs> uh, and what's our, do we have our new website up or we just have a splash page? It's got a welcome page and then um, 
you know, we're still, we're building out some fun um, widgets resources and yeah, some cool stuff. And we're on Spotify the, now too. That's been a question. Yes. Oh, that's a been a big one. Yes. Times I forgot to mention on the last episode. We are on Spotify. All of them are on Spotify now. All right. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give us in these crazy days. May he give us peace. Until next time, friends. Thanks. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash Voxology Podcast and on Instagram at Voxology Podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.